0: Today's episode is brought to you by Azoth. Azoth is a Boston-based, woman-owned supplement company that makes premium quality supplements for women with the mission to help people reach their highest potential without the harmful side effects of over-the-counter medications. Their newest supplement, Boss Flow, is a PMS gummy that helps every woman be a boss, no matter what day of the month it is. These little gummies are packed full with a delicious blast of strawberry flavor and powerful vitamins and nutrients to help soothe menstrual cramps, stop bloating, and balance out hormonal mood swings and acne symptoms that are often caused by periods. Trust me, I've heard these really work. BossFlow is exclusively offering our listeners 10% off your next purchase by going to amazon.com, searching for BossFlow gummies, and using the code BOSSFLOW. That's the code Boss Flow, just to get 10% off your purchase at checkout. You need to have an Amazon or Amazon Prime account to get these amazing gummies. Order Boss Flow supplements for the boss woman on the go. Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Once again, I want to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you from all around the world. I tell you guys every time, I never thought I would be doing this for this long, and I truly did not. So thank you so much. We got our first sales from the merch store. Um, it's on the Design by Humans website. The store is called Crime Scandal. We've just uploaded some brand new uh, designs. Every design can be purchased as... A t-shirt men's or women's fit it can also be purchased as a sweatshirt a hoodie even a women's sweater it can also be purchased as a mouse pad a phone case a art print sticker so if you want to support but you don't think that you can spring for a t-shirt you can get silly little sticker, uh, whatever uh, you can, Uh, Patreon is up, you're going to get early releases um, at the lowest level, which is $5. And as well as photos and interesting facts about the cases that are not going to be in the actual podcast. And then at the $25 level, you will be able to get a free t-shirt as well as the ability to request a crime. That's something that's never ever been offered before. So I will list the Patreon and the merchandise store down below. But we're going to jump right into it. This week, we are covering an incident that happened in New Zealand as a way for me to say thank you to my New Zealand supporters. Never, ever thought that someone that anyone would listen to me so far away as New Zealand. So um, we're going to cover a crime that happened in New Zealand. Uh, Paranoid schizophrenia is characterized by predominantly positive, well not that schizophrenia is positive, but the symptoms of schizophrenia including delusions and hallucinations. These debilitating symptoms blur the line between what is real and what isn't, making it difficult for a person to lead a typical normal life. Schizophrenia occurs in about 1.1% of the population. While paranoid schizophrenia is considered the most common type of this chronic disorder, the average age of onset is late adolescence to early childhood, early adulthood, excuse me, usually between the ages of 18 to 30. It's highly unusual for schizophrenia to be diagnosed after the age of 45 or before the age of 16. You will get some rare cases of early onset childhood schizophrenia, but it's super rare. Onset in males typically occurs earlier in life than females. Early symptoms of schizophrenia may seem rather ordinary and could be explained by a number of other factors. This includes socializing less with friends, trouble sleeping, irritability, or dropping grades. During the onset of schizophrenia, otherwise known as the protomole phases, negative symptoms mount. These negative symptoms might include a lack of motivation, decreasing inability to pay attention, or social isolation. Warning signs that psychosis could be coming are seeing, hearing, or chasing things that are not there, suspicious and general fear of other people's intentions, persistent unusual thoughts or beliefs, difficulty thinking clearly, withdrawing from family and friends, a significant decline in self care. Displaying all these symptoms isn't necessarily an indicator of the presence of schizophrenia, but these are indications that mental health evaluation is necessary. The person is experiencing the onset of schizophrenia. Early intervention is your best chance at a positive outcome. The positive symptoms, things like hallucinations or delusions, are less likely to go unnoticed. After the primordial phase, the patient enters the active phase of schizophrenia, during which they experience debilitating thoughts and perceived distortions. They may experience impaired motor or cognitive functions, including disorganized speech and disorganized catatonic behavior. The paranoia in paranoid schizophrenia stems from their delusions, firmly held beliefs that persistent that are persistent despite evidence to the contrary, and hallucinations, seeing or hearing things that others do not. Many of these experiences can be per- precursory or threatening in nature. A patient may hear a voice or voices in their head that they do not recognize as their own thoughts or internal monologue. These voices can be demeaning or hostile, driving a person to do things that they would not otherwise do. Odd, untypical behavior flows as a result of these delusions and hallucinations. Someone with schizophrenia may be convinced that the government is surveilling them in an attempt to harm them in some way. This can lead to boarding up their home, blacking out their windows, putting objects in front of doors to barricade themselves, and otherwise blocking or removing items they believe to contain listening devices or cameras. They may stay up late at night in order to catch the perceived culprits. Someone with active paranoid schizophrenia is consumed by their delusions or hallucinations. The vast majority of their energy and attention is focused on keeping to and protecting their falsely held beliefs. The most common type, of, most common time a person seeks initial treatment for schizophrenia, is during the active phase, when psychosis often makes a dramatic disruption in one's life and the lives of those around them. After the active phase, the patient enters the residual phase. Much like the residual subtype, hallucinations and delusions attenuate, usually with the help of antipsychotic medication and other types of treatment. The patient experiences primarily negative symptoms. Although the prevalence of violence is similar in all psychiatric patients In the general, as it is in the general population, Patients suffering from schizophrenia are often portrayed by the media as being unpredictably aggressive and impulsive. The result is increased stigmatization and poorer treatment outcomes. Multiple factors, including insufficient social support, substance use, and symptom exacerbation can participate aggressive behavior. Moreover, failure to treat schizophrenic patients adequately is a major risk factor for this type of aggression. Aggressive behavior and impulsivity are often found in paranoid schizophrenia and can occur during both acute and chronic phases of the illness. Impulsivity is defined as an action without planning or reflection and seems to be related to a failure of behavioral filtering outside of consciousness. Basically what they're saying is you're going to get the same levels of aggression and violence and schizophrenia as any other disorder or as in the general population, that it's triggered by any type of normal thing that could trigger them. So the idea that paranoid schizophrenics are any more violent than the regular population is not correct. Um, patients with schizophrenia may show dysfunctional impulsivity and impulsive aggression, although neurobiological aspects of aggression in patients with schizophrenia are not entirely understood. Impulsivity and aggression will correlate with frontal and temporal brain abnormalities. Psychotic symptoms such as delusion and hallucinations with subsequent suspiciousness and hostility may result in aggressive behavior or aggression can be impulsive and caused by environmentally in. Inst- frustrating events. So they're saying it could be because of their hallucinations or it could just be by because of what's happening around them like any other ordinary person. So it could be the hallucinations making them violent or it just could be any other contributing factor. Like they could just be angry because you took the last toaster strudel and their way of dealing with it is to slap you there's a lot of people who are not schizophrenic who act with violence on really stupid and menial things so you can't really correlate schizophrenia itself to violence is basically what they're saying schizophrenia patients have less insight experience greater thought disorders and have poorer control of their impulses comorbidity with alcohol or other substances is frequent and that complicates their aggression and impulsivity among patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder the risk for homicide was found to be increased with the use of alcohol or drug dependence so basically they're saying yes there's a much higher risk of you being violent if you have bipolar or schizophrenia, and you're using drugs and alcohol, but that's true in regular populations as well. It's not exclusive to the mentally ill. So um, I just want to throw that in there because there is this misconception that all people with schizophrenia are violent. That's not true. I've had a very good friend in my life who has uh, schizophrenia, and they were never violent at any point ever. So um, it's just a misconception. I thought that it was very important to understand the disorder. Today's episode is brought to you by Azoth. Azoth is a Boston-based, woman-owned supplement company that makes premium quality supplements for women with the mission to help people reach their highest potential without the harmful side effects of over-the-counter medications. Their newest supplement, Boss Flow, is a PMS gummy that helps every woman be a boss, no matter what day of the month it is. These little gummies are packed full with a delicious blast of strawberry flavor and powerful vitamins and nutrients to help soothe menstrual cramps, stop bloating, and balance out hormonal mood swings and acne symptoms that are often caused by periods. Trust me, I've heard these really work. Bossflow is exclusively offering our listeners 10% off your next purchase by going to amazon.com, searching for Bossflow gummies, and using the code BOSSFLOW That's the code BOSSFLOW just to get 10% off your purchase at checkout. You need to have an Amazon or Amazon Prime account to get these amazing gummies. Order BOSSFLOW supplements for the boss woman on the go. Nearly, at nearly 9 a.m. on Saturday, February 8th, 1997, when Neville and Helen Anderson sat down for breakfast at their family lodge, just south of tiny rural settlement of Raramu, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and central North Island, it was set against a backdrop of green bushes and rolling hills. The Andersons built the lodge about 30 minutes drive from the slopes of Rahupai, once again, I hope I'm saying it right, six years earlier as an escape from the city. They were joined by four couples, Isabel and Anthony McCarty, Raymond and Eve Spencer, Gordon and Andrea Brander, and Stephen Hansen and Michael Churton, and their good friend, John Matthews. Within minutes, five of the people sitting at the breakfast table would be dead and the rest running for their lives. Two years earlier, the Anderson's son, Stephen, had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He had been under the care of the Capital and Coast District Health Board. His parents felt he had not been well enough to be left home alone in Wellington that weekend, so they had brought him along. That morning, he carried out one of the worst massacres in New Zealand history. He just came in the room with a stern look on his face, and then he said something about having had sex with a cat and a dog, Helen Anderson later revealed in court. It was quite horrifying. I got up immediately and suggested he go to the bathroom and get washed and then go have some breakfast. Anderson walked out of the room, returning two minutes later with a sawed-off single barrel shotgun. "'What are you doing? Give that to me, Stephen!' Neville Anderson shouted at his son, trying to grab the barrel of the gun. Anderson pulled the trigger and killed his father. Helen and the other guests scrambled to get out of the room, out of the lodge, and out of the line of fire. The shots kept coming. Andrea and John were killed inside the lodge as they tried to flee and Stephen Hansen was shot dead while he was on the phone to police. The helpless policeman on the other end of the line heard Hansen beg for his life. Then gunshots came and there was silence. Outside, the Spencers and McCartys came under fire. As he dived in the bushes, Raymond Spencer was shot in the side of the face. He and his wife dropped to the ground pretending they were dead in a bid to save their own lives. Isabel was shot in the back and passed out as she collapsed when she woke to see her husband laying dead by her side. Michelle Sherton was found hours after the massacre, cowering in a bush. She covered herself with foliage so Anderson could not see her stuffing a t-shirt into her mouth to muffle her screams. From her hiding place, she could hear all the carnage. There appeared to be many shots going off continuously, she told the court. There was a lot of screaming. Anderson had picked off everyone he could from the lodge, but his rampage was far from over. He headed towards the neighbor's place, the home of Hank and Helena van Die Wetring. Rod van de Wetring would give almost anything to go back to that morning. In his first for the first time he talked about how it haunts him. He and what unfolded at his parents' home Hank and Helena had lived next door to the Anderson lodge for 15 years moving from Auckland for an easier lifestyle Rod and his wife Kim were visiting their young children Troy then 2 and 8-month-old Becky on the weekend of the massacre There were a lot of moments I'd like to go back and do it all over again and do it the right way he stated I would have given Anderson I would not have given Anderson the opportunity That was my crime. If I'd have shot him, then my father would still be alive. I know I did everything I could. I know I didn't do bad because I got my kids out and my mom, but in the back of my mind, dad died because I didn't kill Steven Anderson. I still feel guilty about that. Even though I know I shouldn't, I still do. You can't just bury that. He remembers every minute of the day. It's etched in his mind as if it was yesterday. It was a nice quiet morning. And the Van de wettering family were getting ready to go to Lake Tupo to watch some boat racing. Hank was on the computer, Helena was making breakfast, Kim was getting the kids up and dressed for the day, and Rod was outside loading up their car. Suddenly, gunshots pierced the sleepy Saturday morning, a few qu- in quick succession, though it crossed Rod's mind that it was inconsiderate to be firing off shots that early in the weekend. He wasn't worried, though. Then Helene Anderson appeared. She came over the fence. I thought it was a bit strange. She was hysterical. She said there had been some shootings and some people were dead. Rod and Hank rushed up to the Anderson Lodge and saw some people were lying dead. A couple staggering up the driveway, struggling to walk. My father went over to help them and he told me to go home and ring the police. And that was the last time I saw my father alive. Rod raced home and rang the police and told his mother and Helen Anderson to get the kids and get into the car. Meanwhile, Kim ran up the driveway to the main road to help. I wanted to get them out of there, and then I heard some more shots being fired. Mom and Helene were getting into the back of the car with the kids. I was fumbling through the house trying to piece together a rifle. I got everyone in the car and I started reversing to turn the car around and head up to driveway. That's when I saw Anderson come over the fence. Anderson was still armed with the sawed-off shotgun, and he was blocking Rod from turning. There was no way he could reverse at the steep driveway to the road, so he drove back towards the house. I was hoping I could get the car around the back of the house, but the gate was closed and locked, so I did the only thing I could do. I hopped out, and I confronted Anderson as he came down the driveway. See, I'm sorry. I'd have just ran him over. I'm sorry. He's too, he's too nice I'd have just run him over. I would have just... I'm sorry. I'd have just run him over. (laughs) I'd have driven. It's a van. It is a van. I'd have driven right through his ass. Sorry. I'd have ran his ass over. I was behind the car using it as a shield. He had his firearm and wasn't stopping or slowing down. So I went out from behind the car and met him face to face. Rod had his rifle aimed at Anderson and told him to back off several times. Anderson dropped to the ground, surprising Rod, then looked up at him. And shot him in the face. It was all in slow motion, but it was very clear-headed. I couldn't really see anything out of my right eye, but I could see little bits through my left. My first thought was to run, get him to follow me, get him away from my family. Rod stumbled towards the bush, scrambled over a fence, and ran. I looked back and saw Anderson coming. I actually thought I was dying. I was getting really tired. I couldn't see anything and there was blood all over me. I thought that was it. I thought I was dead, and I just wanted to get him away from that car. I vaguely remember hearing more shots behind me. I'm not sure how far he followed me, but at some point he went up the hill to the main road. That's when he confronted my wife, and that's when he killed my father. Kim and Hank had flagged down a logging truck when Henderson popped out from behind it. He shot Hank in the head, aimed at Kim, and then decided he changed his mind and fled. Meanwhile, Rod, still forging through the brush, headed for the top of Rorami Spiral, a feat of railway engineering at the top of a hill near the town. He collapsed there and lay bleeding until police found him. He was rushed to Palmerston North Hospital, where he was later reunited with Kim and given the gut-wrenching news of his father's death. It was so surreal. We just didn't realize what had gone on, for starters. We knew something had happened, but we didn't quite fathom how bad it really was. Anderson, now 39, went on a cannabis-fueled shooting rampage at his family's lodge in Central North Island on February 8, 1997. He killed six people, including his father. At the time of the killings, he was under the care of Capital and Coast Community Mental Health Team in Wellington. After being diagnosed two years earlier with paranoid schizophrenia, he had resisted taking medication and was obsessed with firearms and used cannabis heavily before the killings. When asked whether the reason for his recall last month was that he had been using cannabis substitute an illegal a, a legal cannabis substitute called chronic, his mother Helen said she was not sure and it had been very difficult. The health ministry refused to say why he had been recalled. Anderson is classified as a special patient who can be recalled at any time if certain mental health experts think it is necessary in the interests of safety of the patient or the public. Associate Health Minister Jonathan Coleman confirmed last night he had had signed the recall warrant after advice from Anderson's doctors and the health ministry director of mental health. So for those of you who are not from New Zealand, how it works there is someone can be under the care of, in my state in Massachusetts, we have something called the Department of Mental Health. It's why we do not have conservatorships in Massachusetts. So if someone is having an adult is having mental health issues to the extent that they need someone to care for them. The Department of Mental Health steps in, Um, they determine whether they need to be put in a hospital or they can live on their own. If they can live on their own own, but they need guidance, the Department of Mental Health looks over them, oversees them, make sure they go to their doctor's appointments. If They can't take care of their finances. The Department of Mental Health is appointed as the payee. That means the checks go to the Department of Mental Health is put into a trust they oversee and they pay their bills. How they don't get screwed over the way that people do in a conservatorship is because they are employees of the state. Everything is audited and run by the state. They can't um, obviously they can't profit. They're not getting paid out of the conservatorship. They're getting paid the salary by the state, Um, and that's why we don't have conservatorships. Much like the Department of Mental Health in Massachusetts, New Zealand has the health ministry that oversees mental health patients. So this particular individual was being overseen by them. He was classified as a level of patient that upon discharge can be recalled, meaning that they can determine they need to be readmitted to a mental health facility because they are concerned they are a danger to themselves and others. And that was the situation with this individual. They had sworn basically what is the equivalent of a health and safety warrant out for him, stating that he was a danger to himself and others so that he could be brought back into, inpatient, uh, basically a lockdown inpatient setting. Um, So that's just kind of an explanation about how the New Zealand system works is different than maybe the system here, um, if you weren't um, familiar with it. Um, So... The Anderson shot dead his father, Neville, 60, Anthony McCarty, 63, Stephen Hansen, 38, John Matthews, 28, Andrea Brander, 52, and Hendrik Henk van der Wittering, 51. He also wounded four others. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity, of six murders and four attempted murders, and locked up in full time secure psychiatric care. Anderson has been living in a flat in suburban Clauston Park in Upper Hutt since his release. His release. He was released in 2009. In May, he said he valued his freedom. We are just trying to put what happened behind us and get on with what's left of the pieces. Put them back together. So this is a little bit of a timeline so that you can understand how things worked. In February 8th, 1987, 1997, Stephen Anderson goes on a shooting rampage at his family's lodge. He shoots 10 people, killing six, including his father. He's found not guilty due to insanity. Anderson is released in 2009 to the Upper Hutt community as a special patient. He's subject to strict conditions and is monitored by a forensic health service professional. Anderson writes an article for North and South magazine speaking of events that led to the tragedy and apologizes publicly. He has... He was paid several thousand dollars as a freelance contributor. Anderson tells a reporter he values his freedom and is finding inner peace through daily meditation. June of 2011, Anderson is recalled to a secure psychiatric hospital in Wellington. The health ministry refuses to say why. Special aid patients enter the mental health system via the courts. The special patients usually have been charged with serious offenses. There are more than 100 special patients throughout New Zealand. All are treated and closely monitored. Special patients are under the care of forensic mental health service and usually under 24 hour accountable care. Once the person is stable, further rehabilitation usually involves supervision with a hospital setting and then later in the community, like a transitional living type of situation. When special patients breach their leave conditions, they're recalled, treated, reassessed, and the process begins from scratch. They may also be recalled if the director of mental health services at a district health board decides that it is necessary for any reason and it is in the interest of safety of the patient or the public. So it sounds like he did um, violate the terms. It could be cannabis. It could be anything um, they could have just decided they wanted to reassess him and they wanted to determine if it was best for himself or the public to be out um, and about. But that is the story of Steven Anderson and the mass shooting that he committed in the late 80s. Um, I hope to see you again. Um, join us next time. We are going to cover the move bombing in philadelphia when the united states um the philadelphia police actually dropped a bomb on the residential community um yes you heard that right they dropped a bomb in a residential community um and actually caused 250 people to lose their homes because they were trying to deal with one militant group so um in the meantime I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.